happening now. We'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room, episode 242, for December the 15th, 2021. My name is Wes Fryer, coming to you from windy Oklahoma City, which was not as windy as Boulder, Colorado, and I think my parents' town of Manhattan, Kansas today. Um, but nonetheless, coming to you f- uh, where from Oklahoma City, where I am still the technology innovation Technology Integration Innovation Specialist. You'd think I'd be able to say that after three years, but, you know, it's a long title. Uh, and joining me as I'm at the Cassidy School, which is just kind of down the street. Um, is we it actually have some break yet? Yeah, well, you know, we have, we have some job-related news. I heard some rumors uh, up in Missoula. Uh, Dr. Jason Neifer, welcome, Jason. And can I say congratulations, all hail the chief. <laughs> Yes, thank you, Dr. Fryer. Um, I'm very excited to announce that uh, um, uh, after a, um, a, a, a search, um, the board of the Montana Digital Academy um, has named me the next executive director, the second executive director of Montana Digital Academy. And um, I will be replacing my boss, uh, Mr. Bob Curry, who is one of the most thoughtful and pro- positive people I've ever worked with in education in my uh, 25 years in the biz, and I'm really excited that I can walk in his footsteps and and be the next executive director of MTDA. So um, I'm thrilled uh, beyond belief. It's, it's it's really the culmination of a lot of hard work uh, to help build distance learning in the state of Montana, and I really look forward to taking over in January. That That is so, so good. Um, I am hopeful myself to have some uh, exciting job news to share at some point. Um I think my mother, who who knows, I, I think Peggy is the only one with us, but who knows if my parents will tune in live later. But she had she had discouraged me from sharing, you know, too much job search news. But I don't have any, I don't have anything super exciting to share, other than I've <laughs> actually had an interview, and <laughs> I have two of the eighteen positions I've applied for across the country. Uh, two of the positions I do actually know some people in that department, so I'm hopeful that yeah, it will be a little bit different than, you know, casting the proverbial bottle with my name into the ocean. But anyway, uh, yes, well, did Montana, well, we always have to talk a little bit of weather before we talk about the real meat of the <laughs> podcast. Sure. Did you guys have uh, wild weather with wind and, and uh, thunderstorms or I, uh, that was kind of more central Midwest, I think. Yeah. Yeah. We, we didn't have, we didn't see any of that, but it has been a bizarre December in regards to weather. And we talked about a couple of weeks back, the high temperatures and now, Feels like winter's trying to start up, but I mean, it's, it's the way it's been. This has been for five, six, seven days now is that, um, we will get, uh, the snow will drop, but then it'll warm up enough to where it melts, but then it rains, then it freezes. So it's icy, but then it's warm again. And so that, that's not that unusual for Montana for October or November. It's pretty late for December. So I really hope for the sake of, uh, wildfires next summer that we start to build some real snowpack here in the state. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, we do like to talk about the weather, but I think we're going to do some other stuff too. So what, uh, what's going on tonight? Well, uh, we've looked, uh, or we've scoured the internet for news, uh, to, to take a look at maybe what's going on in the tech world and try to shoot that through the educational prism. And you can always take a look at all the links, whether we get to them each week or not, edtech SR. Uh, dot com. I guess both of us are having problems tonight. Tell me it's almost winter break without telling me it's almost winter break. Um, uh, edtechsr.com slash links. 
um, where you can see, again, all the articles we talk about. And if you uh, don't have time to keep up on the news yourself, I think that would be a useful thing each week just to even check out our link list to see stuff that we had, had picked up as part of our looking at the Internet. And tonight we'll have stories in security, uh, connectivity, privacy, hardware and software news, some Apple, Google, and Microsoft news, a little bit of what we like to call the tech correction, and, of course, uh, a media literacy article or two to round out our evening. Um, Wes, is there any anywhere in particular tonight you'd like to start topic-wise? Well, I would like to thank you for doing the yeoman's job with the links tonight. So to, this is one of those weeks. Like, I, I think I haven't, I've, I, obviously I've had one. Maybe there's been more weeks where I didn't actually publish the, the previous week's show. So this was like pu- last week published. Well, you can always get us on YouTube right away, right? Facebook and YouTube are, are instant. <clears throat> but anyway, um, so yeah, I've, I've actually, I'll, I'll drop a, a few more links in here as we go. Sure. Um, I don't know if I've mentioned this in a while, but I, I love using hashtags with Google Docs and if this, then that. So during the week, as I find something I think I want to talk about on the show, I use the hashtag EdTechSR and the service if this, then that is connected to my Twitter account and to my Google account. And so it appends a Google Doc, which they get it to be about three or four pages, and then it actually makes a new one, uh, so they don't become gargantuan like our main links. But anyway, um, I only put a couple things in. So I guess I'll start with one of the few articles that I put in under the security tag. Uh, this is from Wired on December 10th. The headline is, The Internet is on Fire. Um, and a, well, the uh, subtitle is, A Vulnerability in the Log4j logging framework has security teams scrambling to put in a fix. So apparently this last weekend, there were a lot of security researchers, and I, I did actually hear about this on NPR as well, <clears throat> that uh, spent a great deal of time trying to figure out how they could counter this uh, vulnerability, which is part of a shared library that a, a ton of, I guess, different uh, programs actually utilize, including the Java edition of Minecraft. And so just kind of reveals, I guess, the cat and mouse, you know, game uh activity struggle uh, which you know which continues between those who would exploit security vulnerabilities and those that are trying to patch them the proverbial black hats versus the white hats and i really other than uh you know running the latest versions of of your software i i don't know um and this was my fault for not getting deeper into it you know if there's any implications in terms of Hey, you know, patch your system as soon as possible. I honestly don't use the Java version of Minecraft much anymore. We're using the education version, which is the bedrock version. It's the one that Microsoft rewrote the code base for. Um, you know, but it points out, uh, yes, the importance of patching. And while people might lament maybe, and I haven't really read any, any of this, like, oh, open source is so bad. I mean, the fact that this, you know, was discovered and people are patching it and it's being, you know, actively worked as an issue. I mean, that's better than the alternative, which is we don't know about it. It is being exploited uh, and we and we didn't find out. So anyway, um, like some security articles, sometimes it sounded a little bit like the sky is falling. I think I read, actually I did. Um, and let's see if I can get this headline. It was a daily news article and I, I pulled this up in class. So if you go to news.google.com and you put in Java hack, let's see if I can get this headline. Um, Okay, they've switched it with the NPR, but it literally was like, this is the worst vulnerability ever, and, you know, everything is going to burn down. So I'm not, I don't, I don't see where that is. Maybe they've, Google News has deprecated the, that headline, but anyway, it gave people that kind of an, an opportunity. So 
I don't know if this has affected your world at all, but no, it hasn't. Although I have heard a couple of stories on it and you know, just goes to show you there are security threats in about everything we do digitally. And that's why you keep your systems patched and up to date. It's also the reason why, um, you know, you otherwise use good, uh, security hygiene. So, um, uh, it's a lot harder to do a lot of damage if your system gets hacked, if you're otherwise doing things like different passwords for every website and logging out of systems when you aren't using them and all the things that, that, you know, are good advice, uh, when, when, uh, um, you know, we're telling people about how to be safe on the internet. Here, here's the headline from the Daily Mail, which I think this definitely would be clickbait. Fully weaponized software bug poses a threat to Minecraft gamers and apps worldwide, including Google, Twitter, Netflix, Spotify, Apple, iCloud, Uber, and Amazon. Experts warn software bug poses a huge threat to internet-connected devices. You know, other than scaring users and, you know, getting people to click on an article, I'm not sure what else that headline actually does. But, yeah. anyway, it is evidently a real threat, so. Sure, absolutely. All right. Well, let me deal with a couple of other uh, security issues then. Uh, first, there was a really interesting um, uh, article in CNET last week. This was on December 8th. And uh, apparently, uh, Vice President Harris, um, who likes to go, uh, 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 I think, running, if I remember correctly, she certainly spends a lot of time with uh, earbuds in, in her ear, listening to uh, something on her phone. And um, the... Uh, some of her campaign aides had told Politico, the, the political uh, website Politico, um, that Harris won't upgrade to Bluetooth connected buds because she's concerned about security of Bluetooth um, and the connection required to use with them. And um, that sounds a little ridiculous on phase just because, you know, Bluetooth is so ubiquitous in our world. And in fact, Apple's moved almost exclusively uh, to Bluetooth uh, in, in most of its modern flagship phones because um, uh, there's no way to, to plug in a headphone. Uh, directly into it anymore. You have to go through the lightning port. But as it turns out, um, uh, uh, this article from, from CNET says that, that the vice president has a point that cybersecurity experts, uh, say that, uh, high profile people, people that, that, you know, uh, there'd be really valuable targets to hack probably should, um, skip on Bluetooth because, uh, uh, it's easily hacked and that it, the information that's transmitted over the wireless connection uh, is, is, is somewhat at risk. And so, uh, just an FYI, um, I have kind of moved a lot more towards Bluetooth. I would say, uh, since I kind of went back into the Apple architecture, uh, in part because I found the pairing of Bluetooth devices to be easier on the iPhone than it was on my Android phone. Uh, Android still, I think, struggles a bit with, with Bluetooth, especially in some of the cheaper phones, uh, if they're not, uh, building custom firmware for their Bluetooth on, on their version of Android, like Samsung might, for example. But I did think it was, it was super interesting that, 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 uh, Bluetooth itself is considered to be less than secure. And in fact, high profile people like politicians oftentimes won't use Bluetooth technology. That is pretty fascinating. I know a couple of weeks ago we did our, uh, gift show, uh, and you talked a little bit about, uh, headphones and, and earbuds. You're more mm -hmm. a fan of the over the ear. Right? Um, I am moving a little more towards buds. And in fact, my wife bought me a pair of, um, uh, AirPod pros for my birthday this year. And I, the, the, the two comments I would make about it, 
part of my problem with the smaller ones is that my ear just doesn't fit very well. And I am going to try, I do have a several, because it's really cheap to buy a you know bulk number of the little rubber covers on there of different sizes. So I'm going to play with that a little bit and see if I can get a maybe a little tighter fit because I hate when it falls out. Um, and then the second thing is, is that I do absolutely love the AirPods for talking on the phone. Um, that in fact, uh, a good part of my day now, since uh, a lot of my job, and it's going to be even more so, is going to be phone calls and talking with folks, uh, as opposed to more of the, uh, hands-on keyboard stuff. Um, I've, I've taken a lot of calls the last two days and I found that just putting one of the earbuds in is just a wonderful Bluetooth headset when you're on the telephone. And I happen to know my wife has taken, uh, singing lessons, uh, in the pandemic and was connecting to a music teacher via, a uh, FaceTime, um, on her cell phone. And apparently that they have relatively low, um, uh, a relatively low leg. And then additionally, they sound amazing. So they can be used in that context. So I've been pretty impressed with them, but I do like a big, firm, you know, not tight, but firm set of, of, of headphones, over the ear headphones. I, I like that experience. Very immersive. Sounds good. Well, um, I, uh, I'm continuing to stick with the, you know, $10, yeah. $10 ones that we can get. I, I probably need to experience, um, a, a little better quality. So our, <clears throat> one of our children, I'll, I'll let them remain uh, nameless has, <laughs> has lost a few pair of, uh, you know, a, an air set of AirPods, and then we yeah. get some beats and some other things. And so that's dissuaded me from, you know, purchasing <clears throat> more of those, but I probably should, uh, yeah, I should probably experience a little more of that because you're now, yeah, you're, you're experiencing the, uh, noise canceling and that's what I've yes. heard is just pretty, pretty amazing. Yeah, it, it really, really is. And then I've got a couple other security articles that I want to mention just because we've talked about them in the past. There's a, a, a an interesting article from CNET also on December 8th about how Canadian carjackers are using, uh, air tags, um, uh, to uh, steal cars. And it's really, uh, it's pretty like when I, when I saw this, I thought, Ooh, a real like air tag caper. No, it's, it's, it's pretty, um, it's, it's pretty low tech in light of the fact that it uses, uh, air tags, basically, uh, carjackers, uh, find cars they want. So we're talking about high end cars, uh, that, that, that have a high value, uh, 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 when they're trying to, to, to sell it later, um, they're sticking AirPods somewhere on the car uh, so they can get the, the car's home address, and then they go steal the car at night, uh, apparently, um, which, um, you know, it, it, it seems like that the other way to do that would just be to drive around in affluent neighborhoods looking for cars as such, but still, this is apparently something that authorities are concerned about. And then um, another interesting note is The Verge noted on December 12th that there is a new Android app out from Apple that essentially allows you to spot air tags uh, that are maybe with you. One of the security or I guess safety features in the Apple version of the air tag is if an air tag's following you around, that's not associated with you. It'll actually let you know that. Um, and in fact, disable it uh, for security purposes. But of course that doesn't you know really mean Jack if you're um, on an Android device, but now you can download an app, uh, an app that essentially has that same functionality and also allows you to, uh, help people, uh, uh, unite with lost devices. Now, I did see one smarmy comment about this on the internet a couple of days ago, probably on Twitter, 
that that you know Apple released a released an app on Android to help people protect it from a product that Apple's released. So that's a pretty funny comment and also true. Um, but I will say I very much enjoyed um, the AirTags. I think they're 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 wonderful devices. I do have security concerns and safety concerns regarding them, but I think Apple's headed in the right direction. Wow, that makes me think of these services that you can get uh, for trackers, like for kids. So, mm-hmm. you know, you have to pay a monthly fee, <clears throat> but you can put this, you know, small GPS-connected device, you know, for instance, in a child's car. And, uh, you know, even though location services on phones and all that kind of stuff, you know, if they're turned on, may tell you where that child is. Um, but, hey, yeah, $29. But that's that. Yeah, that's super interesting that you can... Uh, it can detect if, if an air tag is following you that you don't own. Yeah. So I don't know. I have not, I haven't bought into that yet and gotten any air tags and thought, Oh yes, this is going to, you know, help me, help me solve an issue. So I don't know. I don't know if that's something that I will uh, have a, have a foray in or not, but I will say <laughs> talking about, you know, the show encouraging us to take action. I did sign up for Twitter blue right after you talked about it on the show <laughs> last time. And I've enjoyed it. It's not as good as nuzzle. I love nuzzle and nuzzle was aggregating both Facebook uh, user article recommendations as well as Twitter. But anyway, and I will say, I, I wish they didn't have advertise or that they exempted you from, from uh, timeline advertising, but I have been enjoying the Twitter blue feature of of uh, ad free articles more than I thought I would because it also um, uh, it's just a better experience and so I will say I've enjoyed that as well. And it's kind of excuse me, goodness, that's a great thing to do on a podcast. Let me, uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> folks, this is a very professional show, so it really know, is. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we are just Jason and I have really you know been forced fighting to the the urge to quit our day jobs because you know there's just a lot of income that's coming from this professional gig. no um and i just forgot oh why did it take them so long right i mean twitter took so long to roll something out and i'm glad yeah. they didn't roll something out bad or you know this isn't breaking twitter um but uh yeah it just it seems like it's taken a really long time for them to do it and i'm i'm happy with it and i love twitter i mean twitter is one of the most important platforms that I use every single day. Um, you know, so I don't, don't have a problem, you know, and it's a very small amount of money. So I certainly don't have a problem with that kind of a monthly subscription. So anyway, I was glad to learn. I learned about it here first from Dr. Neifert. So and uh, then you'll, you'll, quick, you'll, you'll have to do some more persuasion though, if you're going to get me to jump on the air ten air tags bandwagon. Yeah. Well, I, well, one other thing I'll say, well, actually uh, I have another article in a moment, uh, Dr. Fryer that, that will at least tell you, talk you out of their competitors. So um, the other thing is that LastPass, which I'm not quite sure if it's our, our show recommended password manager, but certainly mine. Um, I love LastPass so much so that I, I, I purchase for, I think it's like $30 a year, the pro version of it. Uh, which gives me some important features to use it across devices, but LastPass is amazing, and uh, they actually have moved back into being an independent company. They were purchased by the group that owns LogMeIn, um, which is a set of, of services, and they've been kind of consolidating with some other tech services, and it's apparently doing so well that they're going to move it back to be an independent company uh, because there's some, I'm assuming, some business reason for doing that. But more importantly, they're talking about how they're working on new apps on both iOS and Android, which they call delightful and has a better password fill in. And I think the right now, the 
the uh, app is pretty darn functional um, on both Android and iOS. But I'm looking forward to the next version of that. And, you know, I we we advise, you know, long or randomized passwords uh, different on every website. That's only really possible if you're going to do a password manager. So I, I strongly recommend using LastPass. Hey, so a couple thoughts about that. Uh, LastPass used to be just completely free for individuals. Now it's free. I think it is if on one platform, so you yeah. can decide if you want to have it on your mobile device or or have it on your, uh, you know, computer in the or in the browser. Um, it's really nice to use continuity on Mac or in the in the Mac and iOS ecosystems because, for instance, if you do just have the mobile app version, you know, and you copy that to your clipboard, as long as you're signed into the same iCloud account on your laptop or your desktop, you know, it'll it'll paste right over. But LastPass has been the one maybe since 2017 that we have recommended at our school, um, not mandated, of course, but recommended that people have. And uh, I I use it less than I do one password. But I have I, I, I'm thankful for this because I'm I, I don't know, maybe maybe I won't you know change jobs this summer. I kind of think I will. Uh, but I I have I use two different password managers. And so. There is a password manager where all of my school stuff, you know, is over in that account. And I actually, we, we've talked on the show in a few weeks ago about, you know, laptops. And maybe you need to just consider having all of your personal stuff on a, on a, on a personal laptop that's not owned by your school or your organization. Um, and this isn't just like, you know, thinking it's the same thing like with, with privacy. Like, well, I'm not doing anything wrong. Why should I, you know, have to do this? But uh, from a privacy standpoint, there's other reasons to consider that. And just also intellectual property, there's, there's a lot of reasons. Uh, doing things on your own device um, can be a really good idea. And so similar to that idea to say, hey, maybe I need to be you know, doing all my personal stuff over on my personal laptop. Um, I think that rather than conflating your work accounts with your personal accounts, uh, using two different password managers. Anyway, that's what I've been doing for the past four years. And um, as I think about the prospect of, of leaving jobs, you know, it'll be nice to not have literally hundreds of accounts like I've had for school as tech director, you yeah. know, just all stuck in, in my uh, personal account. There's a few, you know, that I have over there. But that is a great thing also to remember to do in the holidays. Um, many of us will have a little more vacation time coming up here over the uh, Christmas break. And if you are, it's a great time to audit your accounts. We know that sounds like an extremely exciting, you know, endeavor, but when else are you going to do it? So it's a great time when we get together with family and friends to talk about security, to talk about password managers, maybe to help a family member who's not using a password manager start to use one. Um, but if you're not like Dr. Neifer, which is like 0.0001% of the population probably, who has comprehensively audited every password, made sure everyone is unique, complex, and, and long, um, this is a good time to do it. So encouragement for everybody to do their security, you know, security audit and uh, update or whatever. I don't know what the right way to say that is. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I saw that other uh, tile and life 360 article. So it, yeah, we don't need to jump down the rabbit hole here because we did this last week. Right. But um we talked a lot last week about how Live 360 is selling pretty specified location data on people. And I guess, and I don't think we mentioned this last week, 
But oh, by the way, they've also purchased the Tile Company, which is the uh, location-based service that uh, allows you to uh, well, it works just like an AirTag. They were kind of the original AirTag, actually. And I, I was a big Tile fan. In fact, I for at least two years, I was a Tile Pro customer, which meant that I got some extra services and they sent me free batteries for the Tiles. But to be very honest, um, you know, I was less uh, annoyed, less concerned, I guess, about Live 360 because that's a service that I would have no use for ever. So I would never have bothered to sign up for that. But as it turns out... Um, um, the, uh, if they buy tile, they're going to have a lot of data that people aren't assuming is tracking them directly, which it is. And then secondarily, that also includes me because I still have, I think five or six tiles that I have in specific applications. So, uh, that ends it for me in tile. So I realized that AirTag, um, is, is a, a technology that some people also have concerns with because it works a little more uh, comprehensively than the tile, but yeah, I think I'm done with tile. So, and this gets to a topic we've talked about before, as far as what companies you trust and the platforms that you are invested in, you know, with home um, automation, uh, are you building on the Amazon platform? Are you building on the Google platform? Do you have a mix of both? Are you building on the Apple platform? Um, I'm not doing that home automation wise with Apple. Um, I'm opting to, to go with Google, but these things are important. I mean, they, since 2016, Life, Life 360 has been selling all this really, really detailed um, location data about its users. And so that's a significant thing and, and sad to see that Tile is not going to, you know, maintain its its independence. So a good follow up to an important article that we had last week. Yep, Absolutely. Okay, where would you like to go next, sir? Well, you know, I, I, was that my article or did you put that one in? I think you dropped no, it in, was, but I that read was, it. That was the, the, the conspiracy one? So let's oh, go Oh, no, there. the bird conspiracy one? Yeah, the bird. Oh, this is so good. I dropped oh, it in, but I mentioned okay. you saw the headline. Okay, too. yeah, I had seen this too, so I'll, uh, I'll, uh, I'll mention it. I'll Please. talk about it first. <clears throat> so the headline from the New York Times uh, on December 9th, birds aren't real, or are they, inside a Gen Z conspiracy theory? And so I've heard some kids talk about this a little bit. And, and these are what it's memes and just different things on social media. It's kind of fascinating and also eye-opening, you know, even in a middle school, how those things come up and, and intersect. So this has been a joke. There's a guy named Peter uh, McKendo. He's 23 years old. And so he started this viral uh, campaign, uh, Birds Aren't Real. And, you know, originally when I heard about this, I was like, I mean, I've heard about things like DARPA developing some drones that look like birds and things like this. But this is just, I guess, a, a big campaign uh, to try to uh, make fun of conspiracy theory and yep. the fact that, you know, the people who are doing this realize it's a joke, but they can use social media and these tools to, you know, get people to show up and protest, but it, but it's really, it's really a joke. Um, and so I, I mean, I don't know, other than being an expose of, because I mean, we're talking about big, big, um, you know, billboards and, um, I mean, this, this guy dropped out of college and, you know, is basically doing this, this, uh, 
I guess it's a nonprofit. I, probably it is uh, doing this full time. I don't know. It's just really, really weird. And it's on the, it's in this landscape of, I mean, I don't know how many people have done a little research or read an article like this. To, what the heck is this? But um, what are your conclusions after reading this, this expose and learning a little bit more? Cause this is something I had heard about, but I didn't really know what it was. And I certainly didn't know that it was just a fabricated <laughs> conspiracy theory by some really young, you know, college dropouts that wanted to make fun of how people are into conspiracies. Right. I think it's a brilliant parody is, is what I would, uh, is what I would term it as. And I think it, I guess the, well, I, th I think, uh, uh, Macado, I believe, is the gentleman's name that that's doing this. I keep wanting to call him a kid, but I think he's like twenty three. He's twenty three. So yeah, yeah. I should stop acting like uh, he's a young whippersnapper. Yeah, young whippersnapper. Us old guys, we don't have the energy for this. Um, but I, I just think it's a brilliant parody, and I think the coverage like this in the New York Times is is really important, probably to his broader point it, that, um, you know that. If we can get people to believe this and they believe it's real, then we've got real problems. Now, I happen to think we do have real problems. So, uh, you know, it, it's probably highlighting for some the obvious, but I, I think it's a brilliant way to bring up conspiracy theories. And in fact, I thought of you, Wes, when I read this article, just because I know how much you like teaching conspiracy theories uh, with your students as a uh, kind of a broader metaphor for media literacy. And I think that's a, a, a I, I'm very envious that you get to do that because what fun and, and, and also immense uh, importance that has in, in the classroom. But um, when I read it, my first inclination was that, um, you know, don't underestimate the power of youth and that, uh, you know, it might be easy to dismiss, uh, I, you know, so-called Gen Z um, because they seem to be awfully impressed with, you know, parts of social media we, we as older folks may find a bit uh, uh, silly or distasteful. But the bottom line is, is that I think that they're aware that we've got real problems and I hope they know they have the power to fix this, but they just got to commit to do so. And a, a quotation from the article, this is McKindo. It basically became an experiment in misinformation. Quote, we were able to construct an entirely fictional world that was reported on as fact by local media and questioned by members of the public. So I just went to our first face-to-face -face debate tournament for our school in two years down in Austin. It was wonderful. And one of the things that I really, really thought a lot about was just how incredibly superb uh, cross-examination and policy debate is for help for students doing source analysis and source critique and just really thinking critically about who is saying something and can we, you know, believe it or buy it. Um, I'm a big fan of Neil Postman. And by the way, in terms of teaching conspiracy theory, if somebody hasn't listened to previous shows, <clears throat> then we do that in our sixth grade class and we focus on the, the moon landings because there's a lot of folks that actually do think, or at least like YouTubers that are getting a lot of views on their videos, which is kind of another side of all this, um, to say that, you know, it was a, it was a fabrication and Stanley Kubrick, you know, did it, did it on a sound studio after, you know, he did so good in 2001. Um, so anyway, I think that, um, we really need to make, ma make media literacy more of a mainstream conversation in classrooms. Um, and I think you're right, Jason. I think that it, it, this is a great catalyst for conversation because there have not only been you know, people, uh, just sit at Joe citizens who've heard this and thought, Oh, okay. Well, that's, you know, somebody, people are believing that now, but news outlets, 
reporting on this, not recognizing and not finding out that this was a spoof and then reporting on it like it's fact. We're in a very, very challenging environment, which is really, in my view, not going to sort itself out really soon because we're not going back to, you know, uh, Cronkite and, you know, three, you know, three channels on black and white television. I mean, we're just not going back to to this uh, much simpler world. And I'm not saying that was a better world in all respects, but it was a less complex world and it was much less fractured and much less polluted uh, in, in yeah. some respects. So, yeah, I think that was a fascinating article. And I also could just say that talking about conspiracy theories and finding ways to do that today in school, which is hard because things are so polarized, but trying to do it in a way that really does center on critical thinking and doesn't focus on left or right. What news channel do you watch at night? But what do we think about this critically? I think this article is outstanding and I think I probably will put it actually in to our unit. Um, when we do that after the Christmas break, the second time for our winter trimester. Great. Thanks. Um, and, and again, I just say, I'm so jealous that you get to teach this topic, especially with that age. That's such a uh, incredibly uh, interesting prospect. So I'd love, I'd love to take it deeper though. Um, in fact, I had a conversation today with a, a gentleman outside of Boston uh, talking about, you know, media literacy curriculum and kind of how we can go deeper with that kind of stuff. But the, the thing I found, and, and this wouldn't be as true, I think, with my fifth graders. So it's really fun to do it with the sixth graders because there is a big difference there. Uh, is they're just, they're excited about that, you know, because it is a contemporary issue. It's a complex issue. It's something that really touches a lot on technology and YouTube where a lot of them are spending a, a good deal of time. And uh, so anyway, if you're interested in that, by the way, um, you can go to medialiteracy.westfriar.com. Ta-da. All right, where to next, sir? Well, I have a couple software updates I want to share that are both really exciting and, and somewhat related. Uh, the first one is from December 13th, and The Verge reports that Adobe is launching Creative Cloud Express, a new app that simplifies its powerful editing tools. And um, I, I think Adobe has lost some ground uh, in the last, I would say, 15 years from the standpoint that there's just a lot of alternatives for consumers in particular, but I think also people that need graphic design but don't want to spend the time learning a Photoshop or an Illustrator. Um, you know, the one I love right now is Canva. Canva is one of my favorite online programs. I was an early user of Canva. I've kind of watched it grow over time. And, um, you know, I help run a distance learning program in Montana, which is a graphically intensive operation. And it's more than enough for us. We don't license the creative cloud for our staff anymore because Canva is as good or better for most pieces of this. And Creative Cloud Express is really a Canva-like uh, platform um, that is web-based and also has apps available that allow you to design a lot like Canva. And if you're not into Canva yet, or or even better, if your school um, uh, is already using Adobe products, I believe the educational version remains free. Um, you can do a lot of interesting things um, uh, with it. And again, especially if you're working with students or if you want a nice, simple graphic design platform uh, backed by something you know incredible like Adobe, then that would be of use to you. And then I also uh, want to point out a, a wonderful article from uh, Chrome Unboxed on December 7th that talks about Pixlr, uh, P-I-X-L-R, which is a wonderful web-based Photoshop alternative. And uh, as someone that 
uh, uh, for, well, nearly five years was full-time on a Chromebook. Um, I'm now half-time on a MacBook Pro, but I still go back to my Chromebook. And in fact, it's my preferred carry around in a bag. Um, and being web-based in that way, Pixlers was a wonderful Photoshop alternative for me. But one of the things that they're doing um, in the web app is they're uh, uh, really improving um, the experience for those that have touch screens or in particular are trying to use pens uh, to draw, uh, which is tougher on a browser-based uh, system than it is um, uh, uh, on a, uh, an app like you would on Windows or, or a Mac. But as it turns out, Pixlr will now have um, uh, pen pressure uh, sensitivity, which means it knows if you're trying to draw a thicker or a thinner line um, or utilize the side of a pencil to get a thicker width. width. And uh, it's a wonderful uh, feature um, that is, uh, I think, uh, 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 even better uh, uh, on, on a, a convertible or a tablet if you're using like a Chromebook, for example, or perhaps one of the Microsoft tablets. And um, they're also adding some features that can rival some of the better uh, image editing, including something called Magic Remove, uh, which is like Magic er Eraser, but uh, for images. So, Wes, any thoughts about those uh, web-based products? Absolutely. Well, so we are uh, we started to do our sketch noting unit. Uh, we finished our, our oral history uh, unit for sixth grade. The kids will do their interviews over the over the break. And as I've mentioned on the show, uh, we're using what are they thirty one twenties or something? They're Dell eleven inch Chromebooks. The stylus on these is the best stylus that I have used to date um, on anything other than a, an iPad, you know, with an Apple Pencil. And so I'm excited to hear about that. We have, and I'm, I'm excited to share that with our art and our other technology teacher because they teach in our third trimester a technology and art class that was just started last year. Um, and uh, that, would, that would be ideal. So I think that um, the question of whether or not, you know, Adobe used to, you used to really need the Adobe tools in order to, to do powerful things with yeah. images. And you mentioned Canva, um, but you know, there's just, there's a heck of a lot that you can do with Adobe Spark. And that's one of the, yes. one of the platforms that we, we do. And you can, you, in, you install that locally. Well, you, you do an installation uh, or you can, that allows for your students, for instance, to log in, you know, with their Google accounts or their Microsoft 365 or, or whatever. Um, but it is a, a free platform and it's just really, really powerful. So I'm excited to see this development and, um, here in uh, probably February, I think this may be the fifth year I've helped our uh, our chair of our English department with this uh, book publishing project. But we uh, teach the kids, you know, how to how to create these children's books that they're making digitally using Book Creator. But we end up getting into some different, you know, image editing and how do we do, you know, transparent PNGs and, you know, con converting and, and things like that. So Pixlr has been on that list of things that we teach them how to do and I am going to be now motivated to dive into it a little bit more because especially some of those features that really do seem magical. And there've been apps on, for instance, the iPhone and the iPad to do some, some of those kinds of things as far as selections and removals and, and uh, you know, being able to do some, some special effects. So excited and glad to get those updates. Great. Um, Peggy's asking if there's a special pen for Pixlr. I don't think so, Peggy. I think it's just whatever stylus, you know, you're using for your device. So I don't really understand the technology on the Dells. Like the, the actual styluses cost 25 bucks. And so they're, they're, it's, it's not Apple Pencil expensive. 
but they're, it's not just a piece of plastic. I mean, there's something inside that's interacting with the screen. So it's whatever works with your touch device. It, it doesn't, it's not a Pixlr specific um, stylus to my knowledge. Okay, let's see here. Can um, I do a, re- a request? Oh, please. Let's talk connectivity. So you got oh, the, high, yeah, this the, is the, high, the High Country News article from December 6th, How to Solve the Rural-Urban Digital Divide. And I will preface this by saying I'm on Google Fiber for the first time for the show. Uh, I think I might have mentioned this summer uh, AT&T rolled fiber down our, um, our, our, our street, and I was pretty excited about that, and then just happened – this last weekend to look on and say, I wonder if it's available in our area. And lo and behold, it is. So, uh, or I guess that was last week. But anyway, Saturday, the, the technician came and spliced it in and, you know, they're going to bury the cable, but this is literally fiber to my sunroom. I mean, it's not coax in the last mile or whatever. It's literally a fiber optic cable that has, is, is plugged in, inside my house. And I'm so excited about that. So it's about, it's going to be about half the cost. Um, it's like 55 bucks for 300 up and down 55 bucks. And we've been paying about $110 for overkill. We've been paying on Cox's like thousand down and only 30 up and 30 is the maximum that you could get for Cox. And there's a data cap. And in December at Christmas time with all the kids back and everybody's streaming Netflix. Uh, and then we did this during the pandemic too. We pushed that data cap and then Cox made us pay more. There's no data cap with AT&T and it's a symmetric 300 up and down for 55 bucks. So wow, that's, I'm pretty that's, that's excited really about that. Um, well, this is wonderful article. Um, oh, did I say Google fiber? I'm so sorry, Peggy. I meant to say AT&T fiber. I've been saying Google fiber forever because my in-laws in, in Kansas city have that. So Sorry, yeah, it is not Google Fiber, it is AT&T Fiber, but I think it's still, you know, it's still Fiber, so sorry. Thank you for that clarification in the chat. <laughs> so uh, this article from the High Country News, and by the way, uh, if you're in any way interested in kind of like Western U.S. news, I've gotten a lot of, of great information and uh, a wonderful uh, long-form articles from High Country News, HNC, I'm sorry, HCN.org, but this article was in uh, an interview with the author of a um, uh, of a book called Farm Fresh Broadband, which kind of talks about some solutions for this. Uh, his name is C- Christopher Alley. He is an associate professor of media studies at the University of Virginia, and um, he presents what I think is a very compelling case for how we might deal with the digital divide as it relates to rural and urban areas in the United States. And I live in Montana. Um, I help run a distance learning program. And one of the things we know is a very real thing in Montana. Most schools have really excellent uh, broadband access because there's been a lot of fo- uh, focus on getting schools uh, access to broadband. And in fact, I know in the last few years, uh, those last remaining schools that had uh, short of ideal broadband, a lot of that's been improved because there's been time and effort around that. But that's not re- where the real divide um, is, is, is terrible. It's to students' homes, if we're talking about this in context of education. But a lot of people live too far off the grid to have any realistic access to broadband Internet. Now, Starlink, assuming it stays financially solvent, will, will put a pretty big dent in that, I think. And in fact... Um, uh, I, I do think that, that that's an important technology we should continue to uh, encourage the development of. But um, uh, in this interview, uh, 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 
uh, Christopher Alley, the, the author, talks about that he thinks the best way to do this is to go back in history and look at the rural electrification process in the earlier part of the 20th century, where we paid um, a, a fair bit of money of federal funding uh, to uh, 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 municipalities, towns, counties, a uh, smaller geographic divisions and said, you know, uh, don't pay, you know, don't have someone else do this for you. You create your own co-ops. You create your own means of serving yourself in electricity. And it was revolutionary and probably doesn't get the attention it should get in the history of the United States. And what Professor Alley argues is that we should be doing the same thing right now with Internet. We should be uh, funding this uh, as, as a federal priority because of the necessity that all Americans should have access to broadband Internet uh, as a basic necessity. Um, and pay local uh, cities, towns, municipalities, uh, unincorporated areas uh, the, the money to basically solve the problem themselves. Create co-ops, create uh, 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 government-like institutions to help maintain this broadband. Interesting. He's at the University of Virginia. Did you mention his book? Yes, uh, uh, Farm Fresh Broadband, right, which right. is a wonderful title. So I've had lots of interesting conversations, especially when I worked for AT&T for two years when I, when I came here to Oklahoma about this. I was interested when I activated our fiber uh, to take a look, I guess, with with DNS or whatever. Maybe it was just this. It was the speed test is what it was, because it'll show your your provider um, and it's OneNet, which is our state network. And so anyway, I th- I'm interested to look at that book and delve into that a little bit. We've had a lot of money put into fiber networks and some of those then got resold off to private companies and um Regulation has an important role to play in all of this. One of the things I learned working for AT&T was that, you know, ROI, return on investment, of course, that's important to corporations. But there's some places that like the provision of community Wi-Fi that just wasn't appealing to the company because there wasn't enough, there wasn't substantial return on investment. And a lot of this has to do with rural urban and not having a high enough concentration of yep. potential customers to be able to justify the the outlay of uh, of infrastructure. Uh, so I'm eager to read that. And, you know, the rural urban divide plays out in a lot of different ways. I, I hadn't realized until I heard some of our local politicians a couple of years ago talking, you know, what a huge deal it is in, in terms of a lot of issues, not just school issues and trying to people trying to consolidate schools. And this is something that kind of just every few years in Oklahoma, somebody raises this and it causes a whole bunch of, you know, ruffled feathers and, and then it gets kind of fought down. But it's a big deal. And uh, I think that, you know, the, this whole idea of, co- of cooperatives and the provision, that's why I'm like literally so thrilled and, and amazed that we have fiber in our house. Like it's not just it came to the neighborhood and then a coax cable, you know, or copper wire. I mean, that's what AT&T did for so long with DSL was they're like, well, we can get you fast enough Internet with two copper wires and whatever. But, you know, six to eight megs per second or whatever that that could do. It just, I don't know, maybe it was a little faster, but it was nothing, you know, like you could do on coax, much less fiber. And I put it into the chat, Jason, uh, the technician said, you know, right now they're, I think they're, they're capped at it. You can get like a thousand uh, or you can basically get a gig down. And with the same hardware that I have, it's going to five gig uh, symmetrical five gigs per second up and down that we'll be able to get. And that's coming soon. Uh, it's just that that's just a matter of a dial for them to, to turn up yeah. and down. It's not like they're going to have to roll out additional 
infrastructure. So are you seeing uh, any significant changes in Montana with connectivity and with the, your program? I, I, yeah, I, I have heard that there, that there are some efforts that are, 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 are showing some, some progress. Um, uh, you know, 5g is now here. That's helpful. Um, I, I think um, the I'm on, on T-Mobile in Montana and, there is a, a, a 5G tower in Missoula, uh, a single one. It's good enough actually to get a pretty decent, uh, a pretty decent uh, signal around town. But what's always super interesting to me about that is that, um, I'm sure there are some areas that, you know, if you are on T-Mobile, Verizon, AT&T, and there's a tower near you, you probably have pretty decent wireless access and could probably end up getting a, a decent unlimited plan that could be good enough uh, uh, in a lot of scenarios and cases. But the problem with that, of course, is that you need to live near the towers. So if we had a higher concentration of towers, that's one thing. It's probably not a comprehensive solution. So I've seen some of that. Um, there is a, a apparently a fiber provider um, uh, going uh, in uh, the city of Missoula. And in fact, I've sat through two focus groups now and taken a survey about it. Uh, and talked about, you know, what, what I'd be looking for in regards to a fiber provider. So maybe Missoula, uh, soon enough, uh, will have access for that. But, um, I already have, uh, two, maybe even three decent options in Missoula where most of Montana, uh, is, is in a lot of cases lucky to have one. Yeah. In the chat, Peggy and I are talking about, uh, she's mentioned T-Mobile 5G in her neighborhood. Um, data caps are again, though, something that you want to look out for. And generally it seems like, the wireless providers, the cellular company providers um, always have a data cap, but Cox has been enforcing a data cap. That's one of the things I was mentioning with AT&T that is an exceptional differentiator is they don't. So yeah, it's good to have options. We've talked about this on the show before, and I think we come together in this for sure that, you know, consumers win when there are more choices. And when there's just one choice, usually that's, that's not, that's not optimal as far as prices and features and functions. So. Yep, absolutely. All right, where else would you like to go tonight? Well, let's see. A um, couple quick Google uh, updates. In fact, I've got uh, I've got some fast fast share updates from Google, Apple, and Microsoft. Um, first, uh, it's a really great discussion in Kevin Tofel's about Chromebooks uh, blog on December fourteenth about how secure a Chromebook is after it stops getting updates. And we've talked about here in the past that uh, previously, I think it was five years, then it was six years. I think it's eight or nine now on new Chromebooks, uh, how long Google will support them with updates. But the complication of all this, of course, um, is that, you know, a, a lot of schools might be tempted to use them even after uh, they're not supported anymore, just because they try, try to squeeze every dime they can out of technology dollars. And, um, you know, I would encourage you if you if you're thinking about this or if you want to take a look at um, uh, uh, if you want to take a look at um, uh, using a Chromebook after its its expiration date, then there is some interesting discussion there. And I also encourage you to hang out in the comments where there's also uh, quite a bit of interesting discussion as well. The big summary is that, uh, you know, the browser is the riskiest part of, of uh, uh, a security experience if you're an internet connected device. And so if you're not updating, you could ultimately uh, 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 be exposed to some kind of exploit. And right, and that points out that, and I didn't know this, Google is splitting off the browser uh, in a project called LaCrosse. Yep. And so that potentially will allow them to continue updating the Google browser even when the Chrome OS that you have is not being updated. So that that's a security win. 
Yep, absolutely. And then here's an, an interesting, another article um, uh, uh, from Kevin Toefel. This is uh, uh, about Chromebooks on December 8th. Uh, there is an upcoming uh, feature in Chrome. It's currently in the beta cha channel. You can turn it on. Uh, the, I encourage you to go to the article, but it's basically a snoop detector. So it uses your camera to keep an eye on the background um, uh, while you're, I, I think it's the camera. It could also, I guess, be the, um, if there's any other sensors in the laptop, but it uses some means of looking at when someone else is looking at your screen in the background. So if someone's behind you looking at your screen, it will dim your screen so that it's less likely for people to be able to spot things. So um, uh, uh, an un, um, uh, um, what am I trying to say? <laughs> Unobtrusive or uh, inexpensive way to increase yeah, your security that a little if, bit. You know, if, if you, if you are looking at sensitive data as part of your job, and by the way, if you're a teacher, you are oftentimes accessing sensitive data, at least what people would consider to be private data. This is a way to add a kind of a no nonsense, uh, 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 practical way to diminish the opportunity for others to see your stuff. So I have a related question and, and I was on an airline flight one time with someone using this and I had never really seen it before. They had some kind of thin film that they had over the top of their laptop screen, which made it impossible unless you were looking straight at mm -hmm. the screen to be able to read it. Have you ever used something like that or? I, I've not, although I believe that, that, uh, that you can find those oftentimes custom fitted to individual laptops too, so that you can add a, a kind of a, an additional element of security. And I have to say an airline's a really good example of this that, uh, you know, I oftentimes will work on a flight, uh, because it, it seems, uh, you know, less, less of than sleeping in the middle of the day. So, um, I've thought about this and have had to be sensitive to the fact that, you know, if I have someone sitting directly next to me, I probably shouldn't be looking at student da stu student data during that time. So, all right. Um, let's see. Apple. Uh, here's why you should update your phone to iOS 15.2. Um, this is also if you're going to have conversations. This is what nine to five Mac on December 13th. Mm -hmm. um, they talk about the the, the privacy report um, that's here. So they've got the app tracking transparency. And so now that they've uh, they've got that, they have a privacy report page. Um, so you can find it in the settings app and it has details on the data and sensors each app have accessed in the past seven days. Um, and then I don't know if this is really a big thing for me, the the music voice plan. is Does this mean controlling the the Apple music through your voice. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. And it's, you can only do it through Siri and it's cheaper. And I, I guess I don't understand the purpose of this. I don't know. They're just trying to promote their own music over Spotify. Spotify yeah. wins guys. Let's just all subscribe to Spotify. Um, legacy contacts, uh, macro mode toggle. So, I mean, in general, this is a good thing to talk to folks about. Uh, just check. So not everybody like, Anyway, not everyone may have automatic updates on. And, um, yeah, you're home for the holidays, talk, talk security. Uh, you're, you know, looking at phones and things like that. So whatever the latest updated version of the operating system that you have, I mean, in, in some cases people would say delay, but now things are vetted so well. I, there, there have been some battery issues and some other things like that in the past with some, you know, major operating system updates, but just generally there's really not a problem with it and people should be running the latest version. So this, that article breaks down five reasons why you should update. I'm, I haven't actually looked at the, 
the app tracking or the pri- or the privacy report. So I think I just turned it on. So okay. I did up- I did upgrade to fifteen point two um, this morning on my phone, and then last week on my iPad because I was had my iPad in beta. And so you have to turn it on. So I'm going to turn that on, and I'm looking forward to see who's accessing like my motion sensors and stuff. Creepers. Yep. Absolutely. I will say, just I think in general, the more data that we have, just like with the screen time reports and things like that that you could do on yourself. Now, when your children turn 18, they're magically, you know, not in there anymore. Um, but I think it's good to have that awareness and be able to to take a look at it. And I'm glad Apple continues to lead the charge with privacy. And this is another example of that. So it's good to, yep. to sort of seeing the fruit of their decision to let us prohibit app tracking and just have more, you know, granular control over that. Um, by, you know, app by app. Yep, absolutely. And then last, um, uh, there is an article that I want to share regarding uh, Microsoft. My understanding is that for, for computers that qualify for the upgrade, Windows 11 is starting to now get pushed out to uh, wider circles of users. We've talked a little bit about Windows 11. And, um, I, you know, I, to be fair, I did download and utilize Windows 11. Uh, I probably spent three or four hours in the platform I think it's it's more interesting functionality wise than it is visually. I don't particularly like the the uh, visual uh, uh, cues in the newer version of the OS in comparison to Windows 10, but it's mostly fine. But if you, especially if you're utilizing a home computer and um, uh, uh, it, it's it's getting the offer of Windows 11, I would definitely suggest reading this wonderful article by Ed Bot at ZDNet. It talks about, you know, what you might lose and what could be issues so that you make an informed decision if now's the time to upgrade to Windows 11 or not. I will not, but, you know, it's good to good to keep people informed. Are you, you're probably needing to keep your foot in, in both operating systems and yeah. sort of continue to be the guru of all since you've got users. Yeah, in, that's in exactly all. it. In fact, we've still got a, we've still got a Windows 7 laptop kicking around at the office too that we don't use very actively. And in fact, we technically don't support Windows 7 because it's, it's no longer supported by Microsoft. But sure. uh, once in a while, um, you know, it's been useful in trying to deal with, uh, deal with uh, narrowing down problems. Um, very rarely do we have widespread problems uh, when we support students, uh, you know, usually thousands at a time across the state. Um, so we, we we have to try to figure out, you know, which narrow band of students might be impacted by certain problems. Back to the iOS update article, Peggy was was mentioning in the chat, the legacy contact sounds interesting. Yeah, that that is actually uh, allowing you to designate sort of like in your will, people that after your demise, you would like to have, you know, access to to your contacts, which is kind of interesting. So it doesn't give them full access to everything in your phone, but that raises another issue, which is good to talk with folks about. And, you know, sometimes people do lots of things with wills and all that. But, you know, do you know your parents' passcode and do you know what their password manager password is? Have they written those kind of things down? Anyway, Apple is thinking about trying to facilitate that kind of thing as well. All right. Um, I guess we could do another article or if you want to, we can geek of the week. It. We've, you've, we've done a good job covering all of your articles today, Jason. Thank you so much for doing such a nice job with the articles this week. Yeah, and just look at the list here. I think we've covered everything I think I want to cover this week. There's one article I'll push to next week about face computing. Okay. Um, but uh, that one I think is going to be a more extensive discussion. So let's save that for next time. 
Okay. I'll do my Geeks of the Week, and you inspired me with the talk of uh, Canva and uh, Adobe to put in a second one. Um, I think Peggy registered for this today when I tweeted it. National Geographic has a free virtual Storytellers Summit, and that is coming in January, January 26th through the 28th. Uh, you know, National Geographic, they're just some of the most amazing visual storytellers. And so they're going to bring together uh, influential photographers, filmmakers, illustrators, and journalists to celebrate the art of storytelling and its ability to connect us and inspire change. And there's basically a single, single strand with like morning and afternoon session, but looks, uh, it looks good. So I'm excited for that. And then, um, as I mentioned earlier, we're doing sketch, uh, sketch noting unit, uh, for sixth grade. And we have been using on our Chromebooks this application free app called Squid. It's actually a freemium. So we just use the free version. But one of my kids today mentioned Google Canvas. And I wonder if you've played with this, uh, Dr. Neifer. Um, I just have dabbled with it. One of the things it does that Squid does not, and it's just canvas.apps.chrome, uh, is it supports layers. So it looks like a pretty simple you know, drawing application with different kinds of brushes and erasers. But the fact that it supports layers is really, really cool because as, as I have done sketch notes, that's something that I've enjoyed. For instance, you can, you can sketch note in, in a dark, you know, pencil or pen, and then you can go in underneath and, and color and shade and stuff like that. So have you played with that one or had you seen Google? Well, Canvas? I was going to say no. And then I went to canvas.apps.chrome and I have three saved images, so apparently I did. I did use it in the past. It looks uh, kind of stunning in its simplicity. Yeah, and that's one of the things that is really wonderful. And Google can do a really nice job of that with a with a simple interface that allows for a lot of power. And one of the things that happens with a lot of tools, including sketch noting, is we can really get bogged down in how do you use it, you know, versus having a very, you know, simple and, and more or less intuitive interface and then just being able to go and draw. So I think we'll probably uh, give that one a shot with my class tomorrow. And we, we tried cursive, which we had talked about on the show before, mm -hmm. and it worked for a while and then it stopped and this weird error came up and our IT department could never figure out what was going on with it. I couldn't either. So anyway, we abandoned cursive, but hopefully Google Canvas will will be better. I'm glad to know that your that your saved files are, are coming up because that was a dis that's a disadvantage of Squid is that if you power wash it it just has everything saved locally so if you didn't manually go in there and export to to Google Drive or whatever you you lose your stuff so it looks like as a Chrome app maybe Canvas is giving you I don't know how much but you've got some storage there that you can you can fill up yep absolutely. so what do you have for us for a geek of the week uh, well I. I I had this conversation with my wife the other day about how one of the great things about the end of the year is that it can help you catch up on maybe what you missed. But the New York Times art page uh, has a wonderful list of the best of 2021. And as it turns out, I have not uh, seen, well, actually, I, I don't watch movies anymore. I watch quite a bit of television. I don't really watch movies anymore. And that makes me a little sad because there are wonderful movies out there. But um, I've loved they they've been posting every couple of days uh, an updated one uh, with with more categories, but it's the best of movies of 2021, best of uh, albums of 2021, best art exhibitions, best classical music, best books, and in every list I've looked at so far, there's stuff I haven't heard of before. There's even a best podcast list, and so um, I would certainly suggest if you're looking for maybe something to read or watch or listen to uh, during the holiday break this year. Um, uh, uh, it, it's a, it's a wonderful place to start. 
Awesome. And uh, Peggy is putting into the chat a uh, link to the Ditch Summit, which kicked off, I think, today was maybe day three. A great free online conference. Uh, you can just go to ditchsummit.com to register. And I have registered, but I actually haven't watched any of the videos this week. And so that's a good encourage, encouragement reminder to not only register, but, you know, find find something to watch. And uh, going all the way back to the K-12 online conference, it's more than ever, we're living in a day of vast troves of information and, and content. And what I find I need is encouragement, accountability, uh, different things that are that are catalysts for getting me to, you know, jump into some different different ideas. And, uh, you know, podcasts are definitely part of that for me. So having podcast subscriptions um, can be a part of that. But the Ditch Summit is a great way to learn about not only new ideas, but new people that you may not be currently following and learning from. And uh, that that can be transformative. All right. So, Dr. Neifer, when you're not here on Wednesday night doing the lion's share of all the article calling for the week, what uh, are you doing and where can people find you? Well, um, again, I'm the executive director of the Montana Digital Academy, which uh, is just a little weird to roll off the tongue. Uh, you can find out more about our work at uh, montanadigitalacademy.org. And I would also like to give a shout out to the Virtual Learning Leadership Alliance, which is a group of uh, speed virtual schools, I think 18 among us now, um, that do a lot of work that I do that provide excellent, high quality, supplemental distance learning education to students across the United States. Uh, I believe that we're at virtuallearningalliance.org. I'm also on Twitter at Tech Savvy Teach. How about you, Dr. Fryer? <laughs> I am on Twitter at W Fryer. Uh, I'm doing more cooking these days as Cook with Wes. I think I have like six subscribers on my new Cook with Wes YouTube channel. So, hey, you can go out and uh, go to food.westfryer.com and you can you can find all my food stuff. But I'm uh, ed educational technology wise, mainly on Twitter. Uh, Westfryer.com slash after is the link that has all of my social media channels, far more than you probably would ever want to explore or check out. But this has been the EdTech Situation Room. We are a usually weekly podcast and webcast streaming live on Facebook as well as YouTube. Thanks to the wonderful services of StreamYard.com. And we probably haven't mentioned that on the show in a while. It's always in our show notes, but it is fantastic and a great platform if you are doing any kind of uh, web publishing. Yay, Peggy is subscribed to the cooking videos. Um, we are going to probably take uh, a, a, a break, maybe, but I don't know. We're not, we, ha we haven't exactly confirmed that for sure. So um, I think, yeah, I think we did, baby, because our, our son actually gets in to, uh, next week uh, for the holiday. So probably to next week on the 22nd, we'll be off. And yep. then other than that, I think we'll be here on the 29th. And then we'll ring in the new year with you in 2022. Please visit us at edtechsr.com where you can find small 32 kilobit MP3 audio versions, as well as approximately 100 meg compressed video versions. But all of our shows are also as we said, streamed on YouTube and on Facebook, and you can access those immediately following the show. And we encourage you to share us with your friends. Remember to stay safe and stay savvy. And we'll look forward to being with you again next time live. If you can join us here on the EdTech Situation Room. Thanks, everybody. Good night.